Open your copy of the Bible again to Ephesians 4 for a study of God's Word together. I'm sure you've heard people start a little joke or observation with the words, there are only two kinds of people in the world, and then they give you what they think the two kinds are. The rich and the poor, for example. Or they make a joke and say things like, the only two types of people in the world, those that like Dr. Pepper and those that don't. Or, I like this one, the only three types of people in the world, those that can count and those that cannot count. (laughs) Think about it. In other ways, people, either jokingly or seriously, divide the world. One that is in the Bible has been seriously challenged. Genesis 1, when God made humankind, he said he made them male and female. The only two sexes. That has been challenged. I've lost count. I read once that it's not just LGBTQ, it's all the way up to 40. No, male and female. He made them And there's no in-between, no crossover, changeover, or whatever. But that's not the biggest division of humankind. According to God's word, the biggest division is you are either a true Christian or you are not a Christian at all. You might be pretending to be a Christian or you might deny Christianity, but you're on one side or the other, and there's no third category and you can't be both. 1 John 3 says, by this is manifested the children of God and the children of the devil. Now, children of God started off as children of the devil, but we changed families. We've been adopted into God's family. The Bible also says it began back in eternity. God decreed to create humanity, decreed that they would fall into sin and that God would choose some, but not others. He would offer the gospel to all, but there's the division. And in time... Those that were chosen will believe. Some have not believed yet. They are the elect not yet converted, but they will be one day. And that this division goes through history, culminates at the great judgment day. And in Matthew 25, Jesus said he, as judge, will separate humanity like a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. There are only two kinds of people. Those that are God's people and those that are not. Now last week, if you remember, we went through Ephesians 4 talking about the stages of natural life and the stages of Christian life. We start off getting saved and then we grow. This morning we changed the metaphor a little bit. What Paul does here is he contrasts what he calls the old man that is, the person that's not a Christian, with the new man, the person that has become a Christian. There's been a radical change in his life from the old man to the new man. So again, there's the two kinds of people in the world. And that's the main difference. Examine yourself as we go through this section. Which one are you? Are you still the old man locked up in the dungeon of sin? Or are you a new person in Jesus Christ? There is no third option. 
And if you're still an unbeliever, be honest and admit it. And God says, come to Jesus Christ. Believe in him. You will be a brand new person. Okay, with your Bibles open, we begin with verse 17 of chapter 4. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Walk has been used several times already in Ephesians. It's a metaphor for a lifestyle. Just like we move by taking steps, we go through life, as it were. Movement, your your thoughts, your words, your actions, the direction of your life. What you do, what you don't do. Bible says we are walking in a certain direction, or a technical term, a trajectory. We start here, we go there. And this division of humanity into Christian and non-Christian, Jesus said there are two roads. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said there's a one road that's very wide and many people on it, but that road leads to eternal hell. The other road is very narrow and very few are on that, but that road leads to life in heaven. We need to examine ourselves by our heart and by our life, which road are we on? We start on one and we get on the other. Interesting, though, that once we made the cross over to the road to heaven, we can never go back to the other road. But for those that are on the road to hell, there is still hope while they're alive. And if that's you, get off that road. Repent. Get on the road that leads to eternal life. And Paul here says to the people he's writing to, Don't act like the rest of the Gentiles. Now, this tells us that most of these Ephesian Christians had been Gentiles before they were converted. A Gentile simply means someone that's not a Jew. He's not a Hebrew by ancestry. And when you look in the New Testament, you find out the earliest Christians were Jewish Christians. All the apostles, for example, Mary Magdalene, these were Jewish Christians. But as Christianity grew in the Roman Empire... Gradually, more of the non-Jews came to outnumber Jewish Christians. They were now Gentile Christians that had never been Jewish. Now, here's two parallels that we could apply today. Those that are raised in a Christian family and those that are not raised in a Christian family, that would be comparable to Jews that have a religious background and Gentiles that don't. There are Christians that grew up in a Christian family, and at the right time, they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that every child here today would be like your parents and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there are people that have never been to church. Their parents aren't Christians. They don't know anything about the gospel. They would be like pagan Gentiles, but there's hope for them as well. You could say, therefore, in this, in this verse, Gentile would be like another word for a non-Christian. So Paul is saying, don't act like a non-Christian like you once were. You're a new person. You're a new man, a new woman in Christ Jesus. All Christians were once non-Christians. But the old man became a new man. And as I said, you can't go back to what you once were. But as Paul warns and encourages them here, he says, though you can never completely go back, sometimes we act like we were not a Christian. We lose our temper and say a bad word. We, we lust, we lie, we steal. Paul says, that's the old you. 
You're not like that. Don't do that. You see, we still have original sin in us, but we also have a new nature and we have the Holy Spirit, and so we have this internal struggle. So God says, you're a new man, you're a new woman. Don't go back to the old. You're new. Now, for the next few verses, Paul lists ten characteristics of what he calls the old man. And remember, that's talking about the non-Christian. He's, non, he's not regenerate. He may say he's a Christian, he may deny it, but these are characteristics of them. And then very briefly, he mentions a couple of the characteristics of a new man. Okay, start with verse 17. He says, the Gentiles in the futility of their mind. Futility means empty, useless. New English Bible translates this as good-for-nothing notions. They're not thinking properly. The futility of their mind, Romans 1.21 says, they became futile in their thoughts. doesn't mean that they're stupid. It means that they're not spiritually wise. They don't see things as God sees them. And in theology, we say this is the noetic effects of sin. You see, sin just doesn't affect our heart. It affects our mind. And not just what we think, but how we think. Sin affects our minds, so we think ungodly thoughts very easily, but not godly thoughts. And in this sense, we have broken minds. We are mentally ill spiritually. We have to have our minds changed. And yet the non-Christian, he might object and say, what in the world are you talking about? I'm not stupid. I can count to a hundred. I'm smart with the computer. I've got a degree. And that's not, but that's natural. Paul is talking about this spiritual side of man, this futile in his thoughts. He cannot perceive spiritual realities, the Bible says. He, he's blind, as we will see in a moment. So there's the first characteristic His mind is governed by sin, therefore he thinks empty, futile thoughts. Look at verse 18, he gives us a few more. Number two, he says, having their understanding darkened, same idea. It's darkened, it's without light. It's like what he says later, it's blind. It's like that person is groping about in darkness, bumping into things, not knowing which way is the way he should go. He's tripping in darkness and falling into sin. Now, Jesus used this metaphor, so I want to show it to you. Turn over to John chapter 9. We'll come back to Ephesians. But the Bible speaks about walking in darkness, which is another way of saying they're spiritually blind. Now, in John 9, Jesus has healed a man that was born blind. Imagine, born blind, never saw anything his whole life, and then Jesus healed him, and everything was new, the movement, the colors, everything. But he's using this as an object lesson to talk about the spiritual blindness of lost sinners that need to get spiritual sight. Now look at the end of the chapter, verse 40. Oh, verse 39, he says, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see. And that those that who see may be made blind. Well, that's an unusual paradox. What he means is that those that do not see physically may see spiritually. And vice versa. Then some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders that were hypocrites, that were with him, heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, 
if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you say we see, therefore your sin remains. They didn't get it. They were blind. Jesus was saying, if I healed your physical blindness, you would see like this man that I just healed. But you think you see. You ever heard the old adage? There is none so blind as he that will not see. He covers up his own eyes. And that's the state of fallen mankind. Go back to Ephesians 4. Spiritual blindness. Number three, he says they are alienated from the life of God. Back in chapter 2, he says they are without God. Not necessarily atheists that deny the existence of God, but they're not connected to God. They're without God. They're practical atheists. They live as if there is no God, even though they might say there is a God. They're alienated from the life of God. Therefore, they don't have spiritual life. They're spiritually dead if you're... Cut off from the source of life, you do not have life. Lost sinners are disconnected from God. They don't have a living relationship. Therefore, they're alienated from the life of God. Though they're physically alive, spiritually they're dead. We looked at that in Ephesians 2.1. It says, he raised you that were once spiritually dead. And we use the illustration of the voodoo zombie. You remember that picture? The idea of a, of a person that's physically dead, now he's out of the grave, he's got dirt all over him, body walking, he's the living dead, but his soul is dead. That's a picture of the lost sinner. He is a zombie on a death march to hell. He is physically alive, spiritually dead, alienated from the life of God. He needs the life of God. Number four is in that verse, the ignorance that is in them, Ignorance doesn't doesn't mean stupidity. It means two things. It means ignorance, they ignore certain things. They don't want to think about it. But more than that, they don't know certain things. They're ignoramuses of that. And in a sense, you could say they're agnostic. Agnostic and ignoramus comes from the Latin and Greek words. It simply means not knowing. It says here they do not know certain things. The ignorance, what ignorance? Spiritual ignorance. Second Peter 3, 5 discusses people like this and says of this, they are willfully ignorant. Not only they don't know, they don't want to know. Some of our men go and share the gospel in different places like yesterday in Chicago and you have all sorts of responses, heckling, cursing and all that. But the worst one is apathy. Or as someone said, the major problem with people is ignorance and apathy. They don't know and they don't care. That describes a lost sinner. He doesn't know God. He doesn't want to know about God. He doesn't want to know God and he just doesn't care. But that doesn't excuse him. Like a policeman that would pull you over for speeding in a different state. And you say, excuse me, officer, I didn't know the speed limit here was different. He'd say ignorance of the law is no excuse. Lost sinners know something about God. Romans 1 and Romans 2 says everything around them tells there's a God. And they got a conscience here. So ignorance of the law is no excuse. They know enough, but the ignorance is in them compounds their guilt. You see, this is culpable ignorance look at number five the blindness of their heart sometimes that's translated the hardness of their heart because the bible both describes the 
lost sinner's heart is both blind and hard-hearted. Jesus once said, do you not yet see? Is your heart still hardened? Yes, we are born with rock-hard hearts that are not tender. They're as hard as granite. And so put those two words together, hard-hearted and blind, that would describe a lost sinner that's as blind and as hard-hearted as a stone statue. You ever go up to a stone statue and try talking? It's not going to talk back. You can't hear, you can't see you. That's a non-Christian. You tell them the gospel, you try to reason spiritually. I remember talking with one man for like two hours, and I explained it. As simply as I could, this man was relatively intelligent, and he kept saying, I, I, I don't understand this. Could you say it again? I went over and over again. It's like teaching a little child, A, B, C, one, two, three. He said, you must see something I don't. I said, I do see something you don't see. Let's go over it again, over and over. And he still didn't get it. Several hours, it was like talking to a statue made of stone. Hard-hearted. And they're blind And they don't see that they're walking on the road to hell. Jesus said, ignore those Pharisees. They are blind, leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall into the ditch. They are are spiritually blind like a bat out of hell. Look at verse 19 for the next five characteristics of the unbeliever, the old man. It says they are past feeling now that's not means physical feeling they still have that but they're a past spiritual feeling they're callous they're insensitive to the things of God they're hard-hearted it just doesn't affect them they're insensitive first Timothy 4 2 uses an interesting analogy of this idea of feeling it says some people have a conscience that has been seared over with a hot iron. What, is, what does that mean? You ever burn yourself really bad, and you want to put on the ice or butter, and you go to the burn unit, and it really hurts because it's ultra-sensitive now, but sometimes it develops a callous hardness over it that becomes insensitive. Take out a pen and stick it, and you don't feel it now. It's been seared over with a hot iron, once ultra-sensitive, now non-sensitive. There's some people in the world that maybe they had a guilty conscience and they were feeling sensitive. They heard a preacher preach on something. They did some new sin that they never thought they would do and they feel guilty about it. But after a while, callous. They do it and they don't even think about it anymore. They, don't, they, they listen to a sermon. It doesn't affect them anymore. Seared over with a hot iron, insensitive. Bible describes some people as without natural affection. They may have natural feelings, but some people go so far, even the natural affection doesn't affect them anymore. And you know what's the most extreme example I can think of on that? God has put a certain motherly instinct into women. They're very nurturing. They're very caring. They want to wipe away the tears of children. And when they have a child, it's, it's like they love that child so much. That is natural affection. But with some people, it goes to the exact opposite. How in the world could a mother commit abortion on her own child? Past feeling without natural affection. Think about what has to happen 
when they go in the opposite direction of everything within them. And that doesn't bother them. But it's like that in many other areas. People that get into extreme sexual perversion. At first, it, they had some sensitivity, but after a while, they not only do it, they brag about it on pride parades. God help us. Beyond past feeling. Number seven. It says they've given themselves over to lewdness. It's like no more restraint. The idea of lewdness means sensuality, sometimes sexual immorality, but other things. In other words, they just become like animals that just want physical pleasure. They live to satisfy the nerve endings in their body, not the desires of a soul hungering and thirsting after God. I remember talking to one young man trying to tell him the gospel, and he just laughed about it. I think he had a drink in his hand, and he said, I just live for fun and partying and all that and I said you're no different than an animal God created you as a human being in his image and look what you've become and for some reason I said you're like a bull out there in the the field all he does is eat and drink and sleep fight other bulls and make other bulls and he says that's what I want to be eat drink sleep have fun have sex and get into fights and I said you're no different than an animal I felt like shaking him and said Is that all that life is? But he would have said, yes. They've given themselves over to lewdness. Ruled by physical desires like sex, alcohol, drugs, overeating, and other things. This parallels what Paul says in Romans 1. How people go down, 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 and they give themselves over. And it says like on the bottom level is homosexuality and lesbianism. They've given themselves over, therefore God has taken their restraints off. And they have no shame. As it says in the book of Jeremiah, they have forgotten how to blush. Feel no shame. They've given themselves over to this. Number eight, it says all uncleanness. Sin is morally unclean. It's filthy in God's sight. It's disgusting to God. It's, as the Bible says, it's defiling. It's moral impurity. Notice it says all uncleanness. God does restrain some by what we call common grace, but sometimes God takes the restraints off and people will fall. And don't ever delude yourself into thinking, well, I've got my besetting sins, but there are some sins I would never commit. No, no. That's the deceitfulness of sin. God took off the restraints. There would be no sin you would not commit, except the unpardonable sin if you're a Christian. Think of King David. God took the restraints off, and look what he did. Bathsheba had the husband murdered, lied to the nation. That was David, a man after God's own heart. You see, we still have that sin in us. Beg God to keep the restraints on us so that we are not given over to these things. It says all uncleanness, sinful imagination, such as fantasies of hurting someone or sexual perversion or to want to kill someone or you have that desire inwardly fantasizing being the richest person on the world in the world. All that is simply evidence of a sinful heart. All uncleanness. Then he says number nine, greediness. That shows that they're not disciples of the Lord Jesus, but you could say they're followers of Ebenezer Scrooge. Greedy, stingy, not generous, covetous, not generous. 
You know, one of the earliest words that a little, little child will learn, and you parents know it, is mine. And the brother or sister wants to take that toy and says, no, this is mine. They pick up the toy and hit their brother or sister with it. This is mine. Greedy. And mom or dad has to say, no, share it with your sibling. But greediness is more than stinginess. It means they're always wanting more. It says in one of the book of Proverbs, it says, the fool, the unbeliever, is like the horse leech that's always crying more and more. A hundred years ago, they interviewed the richest man in the world, probably the richest up until then, J.D. Rockefeller. And they said, what would it take to really satisfy you? He said, just one word, more. Never satisfies. People labor and save and even steal to get rich, thinking, then they'll be happy. A few years ago, I read a very poignant statement from the famous comedian Jim Carrey, multimillionaire. Everybody knew about Jim Carrey, made everybody laugh. He said, I wish everybody in America was as rich as I am. Then they would know that money does not satisfy. It doesn't. But they're always wanting more, and it doesn't satisfy. Lastly, number 10, and this list could go on and on. He says they are, they're corrupt according to deceitful lust. Look at that in verse, seven, uh, verse 22. The word corrupt means rotten. Like you're taking the groceries home from Safeway and an orange falls out and you don't see it and it rolls under your porch. Six months later you find it and it's rotten. It's, it's green. You're not going to eat it. You're going to throw it out. Well, that's the state of mankind's heart. Rotten and rotting. It's like a piece of metal that's been corroded with rust. And it says here, deceitful lust. Now, lust simply means strong desires, not just for sex, but for other things that you say, I want it, I want it, I want it, I desire it. Everything in me wants it. What do you want most in life? You ever think about that? You say, well, I want to provide for my family. I want a big house. I want economic stability, and I can retire comfortably. Jesus said, is that all life is about? Food, clothing, money? No, no, we were created for something more than that. Ask somebody, ask yourself, what would it take to really satisfy you? The only thing that can truly satisfy is Jesus Christ. But the non-Christian doesn't have Christ, so he falls prey to the deceitful lust. They're deceitful because they promise much, but they don't really satisfy. It's like what they teach sailors in the Navy. They say, if you get stranded and you're out there swimming, don't drink the seawater. It's salty. It won't satisfy. It'll make you more thirsty. Sin is like that. It doesn't satisfy. They're corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Now, that's the list of ten. Which brings us to verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ. Jesus Christ had none of these ten. He's the only one in human history that was not infected by original sin. He never fell into sin, thought, word, or deed. None of these affected him. All of these affect the rest of mankind. And it says here, a Christian is a sinner that has come to, quote, learn Christ. He learns about Christ, but it's more than just simply learning about Christ. It means you will become a learner. You know him. The Bible word for that is a disciple. 
A disciple, learner, follower. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says, come to me and learn of me. Now, this transition from the old man to the new man, it's like you a drastic change in you, your heart, your desires, even your thoughts. You think differently, you see things differently. You have been born again. This is the true woke. You are now awake. In fact, he uses that later in this book. Awake thou that sleepest, and Christ will give you light. A Christian is one that is woken up to real reality. He sees things as they really are. He is, in that sense, truly woke. And one of the first things we realize is who Jesus Christ really is, and we know him, and we believe in him, and we love him. You have now learned Christ, but the non-Christian has not so learned Christ, so Paul says, don't go back to that. Verse 21, if, and that could be translated as since you have heard from him, but it does raise a question like, If you really did learn Christ, don't go back. But it's almost like some of you may not have really learned Christ. That's why when we preach, I always like to address the non-Christian, although the vast majority are here, are Christians. Did you truly learn Christ? Do you really know him? Or are you just pretending and deceiving yourself? You might say, well, I remember once in VBS or Sunday school or... Some meeting and preacher is preaching and afterwards someone asked me to repeat the prayer and ask Jesus in my heart, okay, did you really mean it? Or did you just say it because you were moved emotionally by a story about a boy with a dog or maybe that was your parent and you said, well, everybody else is doing Did you really mean it? And I'm not saying, well, did you weep tears? And No, did you really mean it when you prayed that prayer? If indeed you learned Christ. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. He says, if indeed you have heard him. Now that's not literally hearing the voice of Jesus like the people that were on earth when Jesus preached. We're not talking about hearing voices. If you ever hear someone that says, oh, I heard the voice of Jesus. I said, no, that's fanaticism. Just like people that think that they've had a vision of Jesus. No, this is not literal. It's something spiritually hearing Christ. Just like you're spiritually blind, you're spiritually deaf. And God cures both of those. And now you hear the truth of the gospel. In John 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. You could put it like this, changing the metaphor around. It says that you were separated from the life of God. You're spiritually dead. But when you're now spiritually alive... The Bible comes alive to you. Or to turn it around, it doesn't need to come alive. You came alive. Let me ask you this, dear brethren. Do you remember right after you got saved, the very first time you opened the Bible, it was like a brand new book. Even though maybe you had read it and your mother or father had taught you Bible stories and you'd come to church, all of a sudden as a new Christian you say, this is all new to me. I'd never seen this. It's come alive. You've come alive because this is how God gave you that life. Never get over that. It's a life-giving word of God. You have heard God. You are now alive. Now we come to verse 22 where he talks about the new man. 
in contrast with the old. He says, so that you would put off, like taking off a garment, your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put it off. Take it off. What? The sins of the old life. Take it off and don't put it back on again. And it refers to the old man. Now, that's not talking about your father. Hey, my old man and my mother's my old lady. No, it's, it's nothing like that. He uses the idea of what you once were, your old you. What you were your whole life before you became a Christian. Maybe you were, were saved at age 10 or maybe well into your 60s or even 70s. The old man was what you were before you became a Christian. The new man is what you are now as a Christian. This is the real you. What is the real you? Is it the old man still wrapped up in sin or something new? For example, when I went through that list, I mentioned a few specifics, but generally these were general categories and descriptions. Think back, if you can, to what characterized you before you became a Christian, certain sins in particular. I've known people that said, foul mouth. Tell dirty jokes, use bad words, and now they're ashamed of it. Or they were sexually immoral, or they were racist, or they stole a lot, or what characterizes all non-Christians is pride, thinking they're the best. That's why it says here, your former conduct. Bible says in Romans that they're now, we're now ashamed of what we once were. But think of certain things that characterized you. And when you become a Christian, I'm convinced that God changes some of those drastic, observable, sinful characteristics so that even you will say, something has happened to me. I don't do that anymore. What has happened? And even your best friends and family says, you've changed. I remember when I got saved, May 10th, 1972, I went back, tried to witness to some of my old <clears throat> hippie buddies back then. Yes, I was a hippie. And I remember Leo said, Kurt, you have changed. You're no fun anymore. You don't want to do dope. You don't want to go to the rock and roll concerts. And he said, I miss the old Kurt. And I said, I, I'm changed, Leo. I'm never going back. That's the old Kurt. And sometimes it's almost humorous how things develop. Maybe you've heard the story of the great revival in Wales about 120 years ago. And people by the droves were getting saved, including a lot of the coal miners. See, that's a major profession in Wales, uh, digging coals out of the bowels of the earth. And they'd put those huge chunks of black coal in these wagons, and then they'd uh, say something, and the, the, the ponies would drag it outside, the pit ponies. Well, a lot of these coal miners got saved. And they're afraid of losing their job because they went to the boss and they said, excuse me, something strange has happened. Well, what is it? Well, before we would load up the, uh, the wagon and then we would say to the pony, we'd curse at them and they'd take off. We don't curse anymore and those ponies are not going to take the coal out. And the boss said, well, you got to learn to curse. No, we can't curse anymore. Even the pit ponies learned that these men, these hardened miners had got saved. It was demonstrably obvious. What characterized you before you became a Christian? that is now noticeably different in your lifestyle and in the affections of your heart. 
But there's still indwelling sin. That's why Paul says, put off some of those old things. It's like when Lazarus was raised from the dead, he still had the grave clothes on. So Jesus said, take those filthy grave clothes off. That's why he says, put off the old man of your former conduct. And we call that repentance. You repented when you became a Christian. Keep on repenting. And it says, like, take it off like a filthy garment. Take it away and throw it in the garbage or even throw it in the fire. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. He says the same thing in Romans 12, 1 and 2. The old mind was spiritually dead and blind, but he says, you've got a new mind. The mind of Christ continue, go on to be renewed. Feed the mind with new thoughts from the word of God. You see, when you were born again, God not only gave you a new heart, but he changed your mind. That's Literally what the word repent means, you, you change your mind about things and that leads to a change of direction. But when you were born again, dear brethren, you began to think things differently. You looked at things differently. Your values were changed, to put it in secular language. What happened? God changed your mind. He gave you light. Therefore, walk in that light. Lastly, verse 24, he says, put on the new man. Take off the old, put on the new. Keep putting it on like like every morning you change from pajamas to work clothes or school clothes. You're a new man, you're a new woman in Christ Jesus. Live in this new life, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Brother and sister, you're not what you used to be. Don't go back to that. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Live like what you are now. And then he briefly mentions two of the characteristics of this new man. Ten of the old, just two that are parallel of the new. He says, true righteousness and holiness. The old man loved sin and hated holiness. That's really true. The non-Christian loves sin, hates holiness. But the new Christian has a new heart, new outlook. He doesn't love sin. He hates sin. It's repellent to him. He doesn't hate holiness like he once did. He loves holiness. He mourns over his sin. Lord, wash me again and again. I want to be holy and holier. And he'll be perfectly holy when he gets to heaven. Now look back at that list of 1 to 10. That's no longer you. You're no longer blind. You can say, or as it says in Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see. You know God. You're no longer alienated from the life of God. You're alive. You're walking in the light to heaven, not stumbling in darkness to hell. You have true godly loving feelings and desires. Or to sum it up, you're clean. You're a new man, a new woman in Christ. Now, you know what I'm about to ask you, because I often ask you when I do a message like this, comparing the non-Christian and the Christian, and I always say, which one are you? Which side of the ledger are you on? Are you still the old man, or are you a new man? Now, some people, they're still an old man, but they try to cover it up with religiosity. That's hypocrisy. 1 John 3 that I mentioned earlier says there's only two types of people in the world, children of God and the children of the devil. And he says it's manifest. It's obvious if you look closely, 
according to the word of God, which one you are, child of God or child of the devil. Your outer lifestyle and your inner heart reveals if you are the old man or the new man. And remember, there's no in-between and no third option. If you're still the old man, you can become a new person. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot grasp now the change God could make in you. Just look at someone you know that you remembered what he once was and what he is now. I remember talking to a friend I grew up with in New Orleans, and I met him years later in, uh, in Houston, and we went out and had a hamburger somewhere, and he's, he said, well, well Kurt, you, you've, you've changed. What is it? And I said, well, I became a Christian, Gary. He said, well, you know, I studied psychology in university. I think I knew a few things. And I know that according to psychology, you can never really change. You might change some outwardly things, but you can't change. I said, Gary, how do you account for me? He said, I can't. And I witnessed to him. And I said, it could happen to you, Gary. He said, I'm going to think about that because you have changed. I looked him up a year later when I went back to New Orleans. and I, Within 30 seconds, I could see He's changed. I said, Gary, what happened? He says, oh, I believed in Jesus just like you. You got me to thinking. And I said, Gary, you are a different person because you used to be snide and you had that New Orleans sneer. You have changed, and we became brothers in Christ. You can change too, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what if you're a new man? Don't go back to the old. Thank God you're not what you used to be. You know the story of John Newton, Englishman, sea captain, slave trader, hard drinker, beat women. And then in a thunderstorm at sea one night, God got a hold of him and God saved him and he was a new man. He walked away from that sinful life, went back to England, became a preacher, wrote Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. And then later he said this very humbly. He said, I know I'm not what I should be. I know I'm not what I want to be. I know I'm not what I will be in heaven. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. And that's what a Christian can say. Brethren, if you're a new creature, don't go back to the old. That's the lesson of Ephesians 4. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you changed us from the old to the new. We're humbly grateful. Help us not to dabble in the old by dredging up old sins that deserve to stay in the grave. We pray for those that are still lost. They are still the old man, the old woman. Change them. Give them life. Now, Father, prepare our hearts as we come to the Lord's table to remember Jesus and to thank him. In Jesus' name, amen.